This will be a fairly well-known passage this evening in Mark's Gospel, and uh, uh, as we go through it, there'll be much that you're very familiar with. And as always with these familiar passages, often it is the unfamiliarity that we can bring out that really brings the passage alive. Um, so we're in Mark uh, chapter 14. Uh, we dealt with the anointing last week, which was sandwiched either side, or bookended more accurately, with the uh, um, betrayal, uh, them seeking to arrest him, and then J Judas being the one who gives him that opportunity to arrest him, and uh, to arrest him, and he betrays him. Then we come to verse 12. So that's where we're picking up, verse 12. And uh, we have the Passover meal with the disciples and the institution of what we know as the Lord's Supper or communion. And uh, we'll be having a, a closer look at that tonight. So let's pray and uh, then we'll study. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the truth that you give us, for the revelation that you give us. And Lord, we thank you for the entirety of your word. We thank you for the Old Testament on which the new is built upon. We thank you, Lord, that you did not give us this in a vacuum, but you gave it to us in this context, this, this old covenant background, this, this cultural context, that there might be such depth given to us in your word. Depth of understanding. And help us, Lord, to dig deeper tonight, Lord, and to see the revelation of your Son in the Passover meal. Amen. Okay, so verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So, this is then the beginning of a Passover. As I said briefly last time, um, the, the technically, the day of Passover was the 14th of Nisan. And then immediately afterwards, of Nisan, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasts for seven days. And I'll just read to you ever so briefly, if I can turn there, uh, to Leviticus 23, where it tells us this. And it says, these are the appointed feasts of Yahweh, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. So, on the 14th day of the month at evening time, at the sundown, that's when the day started for them, that's the Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to Yahweh. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, you shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation, and you shall not do any ordinary work. So we have a seven days of unleavened bread. The first one and the seventh one are a particularly holy days 
It's not to be any work. They're observed as if they were a Sabbath. And so those days are holy. And the Passover is the day before. But because these days were one extended period of festival, and because the Passover obviously being somewhat significant, then um, what is happening here is we are having a, a feast that is kind of viewed as one. So when it says on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrifice the Passover lamb, technically, according to Leviticus 23, that's not accurate. But culturally, that's how it was spoken of. Because the festival was called in its entirety the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So they would talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread being an eight-day event, the Passover, and then the official seven days. So if anyone comes to you with a sort of, oh, well, the Bible's wrong on this point, that's what's happening there. That's just the way in which it was spoken. And it is during the day of the Passover. So the Passover is going to start at sundown. And during the day, they would prepare for Passover with the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. So Passover is going to happen at sundown and the lamb is going to be sacrificed, obviously in preparation for that. So what would happen with that is that uh, the lamb would have to be taken uh, to the uh, temple and it would be taken to the temple. Um, and of course the lamb, I hope we know, but I should probably just reiterate in case, but the lamb is there because of the whole feast of Passover is celebrating the time when they left Egypt and there they are and the final one of the plagues was the um, death of the firstborn. And the as the angel of death passed over, the firstborn of all within the house would die. And for the Israelites to be exempt from that, for the, uh, for the angel of death to pass over their home, then what would happen is that they had to take the lamb, the lamb would be slaughtered, they would then sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the lintel and the doorsteps of each home, and then the angel of death would pass over. And this was one of the reasons why another name for Passover was the season of our emancipation. It was the freeing from Egyptian slavery. So what they are now uh, going to do, and what they've been doing ever since, is they are commemorating this. They're commemorating it by slaughtering a lamb as was done on the original Passover. Now, before I talk about the details of this, there's one thing I want to make really clear here. There is a lot of people who will argue over how significant the Lord's Supper, communion, is in the sense that Obviously, at one extreme, we have Catholics who they will say, when, when Jesus says, this is my body, then they believe that supernaturally, the literal bread literally becomes the body of Christ, which, of course, we wholeheartedly reject as much as anything else because it involves a re-sacrificing of Jesus, which is exactly the opposite of what Scripture teaches, that the sacrifice is once for all. But... What's interesting, looking at it from the Old Testament background, is this. That Passover was 
communion. Communion is something that we do that is taken from the Passover service. It already existed. And Passover was a service, a, 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 a meal of, com of commemorating. It was there where things represented something else so that what happened could be remembered. There was nobody in Jewish history saying, hey, when we take the green herbs, the green vegetables, and we dip them in salt water and eat them, no one is suggesting anything other than the green represents spring and youth, because at the youth of Israel, when it was a young nation, they were set free by going through the salt waters of the Red Sea. Nobody is there saying, when I eat this vegetable, it becomes Israel. And when I dip it into this water, this water is the Red Sea. It was a service of commemoration. And so it's perfectly normal and natural for, you know, people will, you know, the Catholic will say, well, Jesus said, this is my body, so we should read him literally. No, the most literal and normal reading is that it's part of the Passover service, and this is how Passover was understood. And so it is a service of commemoration that is going on here. And the, as I was saying, with, the, with regards to the lamb, the lamb is slaughtered to commemorate the first lamb that was slaughtered at the first Passover, which enabled the angel of death to pass over and for the firstborn of Israel to survive. So what they would do is they'd take the lamb to the temple, they'd slay it uh, there at the temple, and the blood of the lamb would obviously be the key thing, and that would be poured into a bowl. And then the bowl was then carried from where the lamb was slaughtered through in the temple to the altar, and the blood was poured out at the base of the altar. And while this was going on, the, the Hallel Psalms, which are the praise psalms, which is Psalm 113 through to Psalm 118, would be sung aloud as part of the, the worship service of the, uh, the offering of the blood of the Lamb. This is why, guys, we've already mentioned this psalm already, but this is why Psalm 118 is so significant in the whole uh, um, passion narrative because it is the last of the psalms that was sung at this time as part of the service of the offering of the blood of the lamb. Once the blood had been poured out, the lamb was then what was called cleaned, which basically means that it was skinned and it was gutted, and then parts of the lamb would be taken and would be burnt and given as a burnt offering to the Lord. The remainder was then taken home and was roasted ready for the meal. And the main part of the Passover celebration was this meal called a seder meal, which means order. And this meal would happen. And this is what Jesus is referring to here. Uh, sorry, what the disciples are referring to here when they said, will you have us go and prepare for you to... Uh, sorry, let's say that again. Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat Passover? Now bear in mind, there are hundreds of thousands of people who have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Jerusalem wasn't big enough to hold them all. 
In fact, we're told by historians that what happened is they would actually extend the city limits. So Jerusalem would technically, for that period of time, be bigger, go beyond the city walls. And because of that allowance, you'd have a lot of the people who, were, who had travelled up putting their tents up around the outside of the city walls. And they would be there and they would have their tents up and they would uh, be there uh, having Passover. And some of the locals, the residents of Jerusalem, would make provision for some of these other out-of-towners that outnumbered the locals by far, would, would be able to come and have Passover with them. And that's probably what's being referenced here, that, you know, where will you have us go and have Passover? And Jesus seems to have made arrangements, and he sent two of the disciples, and he said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Sounds a little bit sort of, you know, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal about that didn't carry jars of water. The job of the water carrying was the woman's job. And apparently, even to this day in the Middle East, it's the women who will carry and move and prepare the water. And so for a man to be carrying water was unusual and would stick out. And so they will go in and they will find this man and follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. So in other words, go into the town, find the man with the water, follow him. When he gets to the house, say, hey, teacher wants to know. He will then take you to the room and there's a room that's furnished and ready and then you prepare the meal. Well, if it's furnished and ready, what are they preparing? Well, the answer is it would be furnished, it would have water there. That's probably what the water the man was carrying was. The water would be there for them. They'd have water for washing of the hands as for, for after. And everything would be prepared in the sense of the table, and they would recline on these chairs with this very low table. Um, but they had to prepare the food. So they would have had the lamb taken to the temple, they would have brought back the lamb uh, to be roasted. They, in addition, would have unleavened bread. They would have had these bitter herbs that we have already referenced. And there was also something called, um, I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong, but caroset, which is a mixture of apples, nuts, honey, cinnamon, lemon juice, and wine. Notice, by the way, with all of this, that uh, there was no place at Passover for anybody to be vegan, which kind of would have, would have been a bummer for me, but uh, there was also no place for anyone to be teetotal either, because there was wine involved in the ceremony as well. That's just part of the parcel of what it was and what happened, and people had to uh, be part of that. And so these, uh, and there was also, of course, the additional wine that was part of the meal that we'll talk about in a moment. And so Jesus and his disciples who've come for the festival, there is a provision for them to eat in a building. They're not going to be in the tents outside the city. They're going to be in the city in this upper room that is referred to. Now church tradition tells us, and remember this is tradition, so it's not a biblical thing and we don't know. Church tradition says that the upper room belonged to John Mark, the author of Mark's gospel that we're studying. And church tradition also says that it's the same room where um, the church was born in, in Acts as well, in chapter 1. But uh, whether that's the case or not, we don't know. And, um, 
But certainly, it's interesting to me, at least, that church tradition tells us that. Um, so this is all the kind of build-up to it, and there they are preparing for the meal, getting the unleavened bread, the wine, and, and the, the lamb ready. And so the lamb is prepared and ready, and they go and they have their Passover meal. And the disciples went out, went to the city, found it just as he told them, and they prepared for the Passover. And when it was evening, so this is now the time where Passover begins, when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and he comes, and so now, presumably, verse 17, they're having this meal uh, together. And when they're reclining at the table, and that's how it would be, they had this very low table, and rather than sitting upright in chairs like us, they would kind of lie back and almost like heads would be near feet and that kind of stuff. And so if you wanted to talk to someone, you could sort of turn around and sort of almost be on them to talk. It's a very different scenario that we, were, uh, than we have today. Um, but while they're there reclining and eating uh, at the table, Jesus uh, says to them, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And so Jesus announces to them, that one will betray. Now we have obviously, coming through chapter 14, we are privy to the betrayal that has been planned, but they aren't. They don't know this, obviously, other than Judas. And so their response is um, somewhat predictable. They began to be sorrowful. And they say to him, one after another, is it I? And, and the very fact that you would say, well, is it me? tells us so many things. I mean, it's, it's kind of bizarre. Firstly, it tells us that it's not them. They haven't gone away and prepared and what have you. But what it also says is that they are aware enough of their own sin to know that they might. And I find it interesting that that response is here, and then next time we're going to be coming to the prediction of Peter's denials. They're aware, to some degree, hopefully, that this could be something that they might do. And so they're saying, well, you know, am I going to betray you? Am I going to betray you? And they're really sad that any one of them would. They can't imagine such a thing. And so he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And so he says specifically that it's one of them, and it's one who is dipping bread into the dish. Now, they'd have dishes for dipping, that would be uh, around the table. And because it was this large table and they were all reclining along, you couldn't, it's not like you had like one dish for dipping and everybody were like, hold on a second, I'm going to get up and walk over and dip and then go back to my seat again. There would be numerous dishes around. So by saying the one who is dipping into the dish with me, he is immediately limiting a large number of people. So the ones who are further away will have their own separate dish for dipping. It's not them. So he's immediately revealed to some degree uh, whom it might be. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. And it seems that at that point, because of the isolation that is created by the dipping, that at that point it is revealed 
who that man is. It's interesting that Mark doesn't say, ha ha, it's Judas, but we the reader already know who it is. So in a sense, the revelation is for them. And I think that at that point, we are seeing the, uh, the departure of Judas from the scene. Now, this is where we now come... Uh, well, one, one last thing, just in that phrase, the Son of Man goes. Jesus, again, refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is a constant reference that he uses in, refer in response to them believing he's going to set up the kingdom. Them seeing his kingship, but not his, his mortality. And re he's referring to him being a man and thus being able to die, needing to die. And he is going to go to his death anyway. And yet, and yet, woe to the man who betrays him. I've, I've said this to you guys many times before, and I think this is just a wonderful passage to illustrate that point. There is such infighting so often in the church between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and, and all of this going on and the responsibility of man. And so often in Scripture, we see both. We see both. Jesus is going to go to the cross. Nothing's going to stop him from going to the cross. God has ordained that he will go to the cross and die for our sins. He's going to go to the cross. And he's going to go to the cross by the betrayal of Judas because God has ordained that he will be betrayed. 30 pieces of silver. He, it, it's, it's in scripture. It's prophetic. It's going to happen. God has ordained it. But Judas decides to betray him. Judas chooses to betray him, and Judas is held responsible. Woe to him who betrays him. Now, I don't know why in the church we're so obsessed by saying that one has to be true, and therefore the other one can't be. The Bible is teaching something that's clearly beyond our comprehension here. And so I just teach both. So, you know... Sometimes people think when I'm preaching I'm overly Calvinistic and other times people hear me preaching and they think that I'm not Calvinistic enough, you know, and it's, I just preach the text. And, and the, the, the reality is, is that God is sovereign and he is in charge and he does ordain all things. But equally, we are responsible for the choices that we make and the decisions that we make. And there are decisions to make. And if you think those two things contradict one another, I simply refer you to the Bible and wash my hands of it. Because that, that's what I see in Scripture again and again. And this is a wonderful example of that very thing. So in verse 22 then, moving through to the, to the actual Passover meal. This is the bit that we all know. It's, it's quoted a lot. Some churches, when they have communion, will literally read this passage or one of the parallel passages every single time at communion. It's liturgical. It's just something that's said again and again. I grew up um, in a school that was a traditional Christian school. It wasn't a Christian school at all in one sense, but it, it had the services. And so on, um, there would be services where there would be communion and we would have a liturgical system. So we would, a lot of this is familiar to me because it was said Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, service after service after service, it was repeated. And 
Liturgy is a funny old thing. Some people love it and some people hate it. Often the people who love it, love it because they grew up in it and they're familiar with it and they like it and see the benefits of it. Other times people grew up in it and they hate it because they saw the, the, the problems with it. You know, I grew up in a liturgical system and then when I got older, kind of ran as far away from such things as, possible, as you possibly could. And then I realized, looking off from a distance, that perhaps there's some good things about it and kind of came back a little bit nearer to it. And the reality is a, a liturgy, a, a repetition, drills things into you in, in a very deep way. And that is a good thing. That is a very good thing. And there's much to argue for, um, for the benefits of a liturgical system. But you see, one of the downsides of a liturgical system is that we become so familiar with something that it's just removed from its context. And I think that this is one of those passages that people are so familiar with because they know the words so well, but they're so unfamiliar with because they're not familiar with the context at all. In other words, you can go to denomination after denomination, church after church, and people will almost be able to recite this verbatim, you know? Things like, take this my body, and he gave the cup, and when they had given thanks, he gave it to and they all drank, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. You know, these kind of things people just, just know and repeat. But how many of the people that know this know about the Passover meal? Know actually what's happening here? This is the Passover meal going on. And, and so it's one of those very extreme occasions in scripture where we're very familiar with it in a church context but we're not familiar with it in its own context so that's kind of what we need to put right here is we need to actually see <coughs> pardon me uh, what is going on what's going on so here in the ceremony um as i've already said there's all these different things that happen as part of it there's bitter herbs um there's the dipping of the, the green vegetable, which is normally parsley or celery, which was dipped into salt water to represent the Israel and its youth parting, the, you know, going through the Red Sea and the Red Sea destroying uh, the Egyptians. And there's all of that that's going on in the meal. And so the meal is going on and there is this, pardon me, there is this seder, this uh, traditional Passover meal that was, happened for centuries and they were just going through and they were doing that. So when it says, as they were eating, they're not just sitting around someone's home having a meal. Oh yeah, it's Passover, we should get together and hang out. Yeah, what do you want to do? Should we order in some, some Papa John's or something? You know, it, it's, it's not just a regular meal. This is, this is a very specific meal. This is a festival. This is the highlight of the festival, the Passover Seder. This is something that was specifically done a certain way. So when it says he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them, there is one question, if you're not familiar with the Passover meal, there's one question that should be in your mind. In the Passover meal, is there a point where bread is broken and distributed? Or is this something, in, sorry, in which case, this is part of a normal process or is this something he did 
that was distinct from what was normally done? That's the question. So what's the answer? The answer is, this is what was normally done. This is exactly what was normally done. There is um, the matzah, the unleavened bread. And what would happen with the unleavened bread is it was put into a linen bag. And this is part of the preparation. There would be a linen bag, and the linen bag would have three little compartments. And so you, if you can imagine there's like a, a bag, and inside the bag there's three compartments. One, two, three. And in each of those three compartments, some unleavened bread is put in. And this was then done. And then what would happen is that the, the middle matzah from the middle compartment was taken out, was broken into two pieces, and part of it, part of that broken bread, the larger part of it, was wrapped up in a cloth and it was hidden away before the action meal was going on. Then at that point, they would have been together in the room with this matzah having been broken, the larger piece having been wrapped up and had been hidden away, and Judas was, would have been in the room, and Jesus says, someone's going to betray me here. And then Judas would have left, and then it's at this latter part of the meal, without Judas there, that this distribution happens, where the, mats, the matzah that has been wrapped is taken out, and that piece, that larger piece, is then broken up and distributed to the other people. That's what happened at Passover meal. It happened that year, the year before, the year before that, the year before that, the year before that, the year before that. Okay? And it is in that context, Jesus, while they're eating the meal, takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them. That is always happening. This is the bit that's different. Take, this is my body. We have bread in three separate compartments hidden away. The bread from one compartment is brought out where it can be visibly seen. The other two matzahs are left hidden. Hopefully you're ahead of me here. That one is broken. The middle of the Trinity is revealed and broken and wrapped in cloth and hidden away. Then at a later point, that broken bread is taken out and distributed. And at that point, Jesus says, this matzah, this middle matzah, this middle bit of unleavened bread is me. It's my body. And the reason it's been broken is for you. This is my body. There's a ceremony that was done year after year, century after century. It points to the second person of the Trinity being revealed to his people, broken, wrapped in burial cloth, and later revealed. And what's interesting is this matzah was a very special type of bread. 
It's not that he said, hey, here is this, you know, this communion wafer. He didn't say, here's this slice of white bread that you get from the store. He didn't say, here's your, your gluten-free bread that we have here so that my wife can take it as well. He didn't say, here, have any of this bread. It is a specific bread. The Passover bread was different from other bread. Did you know that? Different from other bread. It was different in three ways. Firstly, the bread had to be unleavened. Unleavened bread, in our terms, is without yeast. It didn't rise. And so we understand that in Scripture that yeast is symbolic of sin. And the Passover lamb had to be without blemish, and the bread had to be without leaven, without yeast. Because it represents no sin. Obviously, they are commemorating the Passover when the bread is unleavened because there wasn't time for the bread to rise. But God, in his mind, had this pointing all the way along to the sinless Son of Man. But to prevent rising of the bread, leavening of the bread, they did two other things to the bread. The first thing they did is they striped the bread. Passover bread was striped. Kind of had marks put across it, indented in it, that was there to ensure, to help prevent the leavening process. In the same way, the body of the Messiah was striped by the scourging received from the Romans. And the third thing about Passover bread that was different from normal unleavened bread is to really stop it from rising, is they pierced it. They put holes in it. So much so that you could lift Passover bread up and hold it to the light and see the light come through. That would ensure that there was no sin. In the same way, the body of Christ was pierced. You see, God had it all in hand. Jesus isn't simply saying, hey, by the way, I just I came up with this, this idea. Just, it was a good one. It came to me yesterday. I've got this idea that we might have bread to represent body. You think that's a good one? You think that, 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 that's not it. There is an entire practice that has been ingrained into their minds, ingrained into their culture, that speaks of the death, or the, the incarnation, I think, to some degree as well, the death and the burial of Christ. And when that bread is then distributed, he blesses and he says, take, this is my body. The body that is broken and dies is distributed to them with the understanding of what it now commemorates and represents. And he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, at this point, we have to ask a question again. Is this something distinctive and different, or is this what happened in the Passover meal regularly? Well, as you might guess, this is something that happened in the Passover meal regularly. In fact, there were multiple cups of wine that were drunk from as part of the Passover meal. They'd, they'd do one thing, and then have a, drink, have a drink from the cup, and then they'd do something else, and they'd drink from the cup. And this cup was the third cup, which was called the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption. 
And the cup of redemption specifically was there to commemorate the blood of the Lamb of the Passover. This isn't something that Christians have made up. This isn't something that Jesus came up with. It was already, as part of the Passover service, a cup that was drunk from, wine that was drunk, and this wine was representative of blood. So Jesus isn't just saying, hey, here's a bit of bread, here's a bit of wine, well, let's put them together and let's remember my body and my blood. He's not doing that. This is part of Passover. And what he's saying is, is this bread striped, pierced, unleavened, broken, wrapped, hidden, taken out, now given to you, that represented my body. Which is now a piece of each, of each goes to each of you. And then the cup had commemorated the death of the lamb. And what he's saying is, when he then says, this is the blood of the covenant poured out for many, he's showing that the blood of the lamb is the basis for the covenant. Now this is crucial, okay? Because the blood of the Passover lamb originally was what got them out of Egypt, where there in the desert, the old covenant was established with them. And so what Jesus is essentially saying here is the new covenant that has been promised, the covenant prophesied by Jeremiah, that that also is going to be, um, is going to be commemorated, is going to be established on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is pointing to his death being the Passover Lamb, the Passover lamb that is going to allow for the wrath of God to pass over them, for their sins to be covered, and his blood will be the basis for the establishment of the new covenant. The covenant that, as we saw this morning in our sermon this morning, that one day will enable all Israel to be saved. But for now, that covenant will mean that they will receive the Holy Spirit. And that's why I mentioned the church tradition. Because to me, I can see the logic of saying the place where the basis of the covenant being the Passover lamb's blood, where that's established in the same room is the place where the covenant comes into being when the Spirit of God comes and indwells them for the first time. I don't know if it happened that way, but I, I can see the logic of that within church history. And then he says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. They have been wanting Jesus to talk about the kingdom. They want him to establish the kingdom. And he says, look, I'm not drinking from the fruit of the vine again. I'm not having wine with you again. We're not doing this again until the kingdom. This is the Passover. And if you think in the context of Mark's gospel, just how much is being done. There is the fulfillment of the Passover meal. 
There is the pointing to him being the Passover lamb. There is the establishing of the new covenant when the spirit will later come. And also there is, kind of flowing through the last few chapters, there is the sacrificial system. There is the ending of the, the, the you know, this, this Passover lamb that has, they have been eating is the last thing that will be killed before the final Passover lamb is given once for all. And so, the time has come for Jesus to go. And the Passover would end with the singing of a hymn, which is exactly what they do in verse 26. And they sing a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus will then come to a time where there will be the letting down the denials of Peter, Gethsemane, and all the suffering that is to come. But what he is doing is he's trying to get them ready to understand. Three times in Mark's Gospel, he remember, he said to them, I'm not setting up the kingdom now. I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. Peter had rebuked him for it. And now he has them prepared. And now when they look back, they will look back to this, to this Passover meal and they will see the significance and they will see not just that he died, they won't just look back and remember, ah, he said he was going to die. With this, they're going to know why he died. He is the fulfillment of Passover. He is the one who will take away the sins of the world. He is the one who will replace the temple, the sacrificial system. He is instigating the new covenant that will replace the old. This is what we commemorate now when we take communion together. We come in, not just bread and wine, but we come into part of an established Passover meal, which points and always did point to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. And... Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Son. It seems strange, Lord, that the Jews had this clear picture of their, in their culture, in their history. And yet, even after the death and resurrection, most could not see their Messiah. Such was their blindness. Father, we thank you that you've opened our eyes and that we can see. Thank you that we see Christ, we know why he died, and that we placed our trust in him and our sins are forgiven. Father, may we bring many others to see. May you open their eyes by your Holy Spirit 
And may we be able to sow seeds that we might see others come to believe. Eyes opened to see the truth of your Son in your word. Amen.